This is the next episode of the Red Blue Expert series. Today, we speak with Horace Dedio, the co-founder of Micromobility Industries and one of the earliest and most influential voices in the world of micromobility. Horace has long been an Apple analyst, and his insights into the adoption curve of products like the iPhone informed how he began to look at consumer interests in e-bikes and later in e-scooters just a few years ago. We look at the state of micromobility today and we touch on flashpoints like the near collapse of one-time leaders like Bird and Lion. What went wrong quickly morphs into what can still go right, and Horace takes a generally positive long-term view of the role that micromobility will play in cities around the world. I'm Prescott Watson, and with my co-host, Olaf Sackers, we pressure test Horace's hopeful attitudes. Without a bit more fire in the fight, and a recognition that sometimes good things really don't win out, will micromobility go from a moment in the zeitgeist to a fixture of transportation in the majority of American and European cities? Horace pushes back, laying out a few good reasons to be optimistic, drawing on the sometimes unexpected adoption of other technologies throughout societies. Let's dive in. Horace, thank you for joining us. Well, thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. O Olaf and I get these um, these talking points thrown at us all the time, like shared micromobility has been floundering, bird and lime are struggling, uh, the movement was entirely a sham. Like a lot of outsiders are just kind of pointing at it and saying like, oh, it just, it never made any sense. And I, we find this very frustrating because to people on the inside, it's so clear how much of an uphill battle micromobility has always had, especially shared micromobility. And obviously we have our own talking points, but who better to kind of respond than you, Horace? I'm curious to know over the past few months, I'm sure people are approaching you all the time. How do you talk through the challenges that you've seen? Well, shared micromobility has gotten a little bit of a uh, bad uh, reputation in the in in that, at least in North America or even in the United States, there's been a, a pullback from both investors and the market, and uh, there seems to have been a, a overinvestment in it, and therefore you have this pocket of of disillusionment. Uh, putting aside the fact that that's a that too is is you know a reaction to an overinvestment, but um, but I take a global perspective, and I also recall that when I began, you know, and I coined the term, it was because there were so many modes that uh, were non-automotive that were interesting to discuss as a kind of a, a, a vector for disruption in mobility. And that's why I said it's, it's best to, you know, bring them all under one term so that we can think about it holistically. Um, and at that time, actually, scooters didn't even show up on 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 the radar. You know, uh, we had uh, bikes and e-bikes. We had shared and owned, and we had a plethora of other modes. Uh, scooters came in literally like the month after the first time I actually used the phrase in a conference. So there's a couple of threads here. One is is the pocket we're witnessing. Is it local or is it global? Is it um, is it going to actually be permanently wiping out a, a business model, or are we going to see something emerge from the ashes, which is actually much more sustainable? Perhaps not the kind of payoff that that VCs would have liked to see, but but it's a, a sustainable alternative mode of transport uh, for especially for for urban areas. Um, that's that's one question, and another is is what else is going on in micromobility is is more than just shared scooters, there's a lot more we're seeing growth in uh, today. And, um, and I, I, you know, I, I actually just 
at the conference last week in in Richmond, California, we we you know I made a prediction that I think we're going to see five billion people using micromobility in another decade or two. But we're going to be substantially at a, a, a you know a, a majority of the human race using this uh, this modes. So maybe I should step back a moment and just reflect on the on where we came from because when when this idea started, like I said, there wasn't a shared scooter concept even. What we had was a, a an explosion and yet another f- mode, uh, which probably was over-invested, which is Chinese bike sharing, if you remember the mountains of... Yeah, was, I was, I was going to mention that. I was going to say, you know, th- there was an initial wave, and I think it was even a more extreme boom and bust cycle. I compare Absolutely. these populations populations of, of vehicles to fruit flies, the way they, like, you'll have, uh, like, a source of food, and then you'll have fruit flies, and then the population will explode, they'll use up all the food... Um, and then it will crash. Um, and you saw that happen with Chinese e-bikes that they just exploded in number, etc. There was a lot of pushback, and then the economics collapsed. And there was a lot of learnings when shared scooters were rolled out from Chinese e-bikes as to how they were deployed, etc. Right, but there's also a, another chapter past the collapse that we should talk about, because I know some people who were in Mobike at the time, and I've asked them the same question. What happened? You know, A lot of us in the West were not... We're not, you know, reading all the source materials in Chinese. And uh, he said it was overinvestment that killed the industry, but it came back to some degree. There's still tons and tons of shared bikes in, in China today, uh, shared e-bikes as well. Not scooters. They're not legal in China at all, but there are tons of bikes in use. And uh, there's an estimate that 400 million people in China use uh, shared bikes every day. That's an astonishing number. So let's step back. What happened? We, we had a, the idea of shared bikes, Ofo, Mobike, two companies that pioneered, received, I don't know how many tens of billions altogether. Uh, they, they manufactured over 25 million vehicles in one year. Keep in mind that the entire global bicycle industry was about 100 million. So it's like it grew by a quarter in one year um, uh, on top of its, its normal run rate. And and uh, a lot of that ended up in landfills. But again, we had a recovery, and we have we have some some level of kind of productivity, as you as as the Gartner hype cycle would call it. Sort of the plateau of productivity now uh, has been reached in China with shared uh, shared two wheelers. Now, we, we the United States went with scooters to some degree. Europe went with a bit of scooter, a bit of bikes. And by the way, in Europe, there's still. I don't know. I haven't got the data, but I, I, just looking on the streets of Europe, there's plenty of scooters that are still fresh and new and uh, being provisioned and, um, and maintained. And there's there's booming bike sharing as well. So I'm, I think it depends very much where you are as to how you perceive whether this is a, a boom or a bust. There's two new two new operators that just came into into Tel Aviv, Tier and Dot. I'm I'm in the Helsinki now and. Um, I have to say that you know I'm seeing more scooters than ever. Uh, their their uh, companies maybe not the ones we might have in the U.S., but um, you know Voy and um, there, there's delivery companies using tier, using yeah. Tier Tier yeah. So the, the the exciting thing is to me that there's a lot of experimentation going on and there's a lot of customization by the, by marketplace. So when going back in history though again we had a boom and bust with with shared bicycles in in China very unique to that market and didn't work outside of China actually didn't even get out the door. Then and then scooters came and then scooters went it seems. But again if you step back and look 
both are not really dead. They're kind of, if, if not thriving, they're certainly finding their niches. And in the meantime, uh, the real boom now is um, is owned micromobility, which means that micromobility as a concept is flourishing uh, despite uh, perhaps some failures in business models and, and uh, failed experiments in, in form factors. But we're seeing a tremendous growth now in, in owned micromobility. And, and again, from the conference last week, the difference for me was that it felt much more like an expo than a, a show where people were just talking about things. People were actually, you know, loving the demos and, and, and trying to launch new hardware every chance and test rides and, and just really a massive uh, proliferation of new product. I want to go back to what went wrong in the U.S., though, because you brought up a few points that I think are great when we respond when people say, hey, Bird and Lime are struggling. This whole thing was, a, was never meant to be. You point out, yeah, in Europe and in China, things have been succeeding. Bolt, for example, most Americans have probably never heard of it, but I, mean, I think they raised like close to a billion dollars at the beginning of this year, they ostensibly are profitable in a lot of markets. So, so one way of responding is, okay, it's playing out in other places. But when Americans are saying, hey, Bird and Lime have just completely failed at the shared game, you mentioned overinvestment and, and kind of what happened in China with overinvestment. But, but what does that really mean in the U.S.? Like why when Bird and Lime were okay. coming out strong, did they fail? What I'm hearing from from the U.S. is that it it ran into an enormous resistance from the permit and, and the, the cities became the customers. One uh, founder that spoke to me said, I, I, I didn't sign up to make a B2G company. In other words, he he wanted to make a B2C. He wanted to you know, solve consumer problems with his vehicles. He didn't want to solve uh, the problems of city city administrators, um, who who were, in his opinion, uh, completely arbitrary in their decision making. Um, so the frustration for a lot of companies in the U.S. was like, how much do I need to spend on my um, my my government relations, basically. How much do I need to spend? Bird having over, a, I, I once actually presented to Bird's entire team of government relations, and there was a room full of over a hundred people there. I was a bit shocked. I thought it would be like four or five. And so th- the fact is that in the U.S. it became immediately politicized with crazy incentives and disincentives. And as such, I think it just degenerated into uh, what the Europeans used to call a beauty contest with respect to cellular bandwidth provisioning for the early mobile internet. So how can you present yourself to uh, regulators to be to be picked amongst the lineup? And and that's just ugly. And um, I think it, it 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 was a swing initially from like come on in, the water's warm to like you know get the hell out of my town. So there's there's a lot of that backlash or whiplash that occurred. Um, now again, will will that settle down? You know, comp- com- compare and contrast with China, like in China, where where as far as shared vehicles were concerned, it was like literally no constraints. Anybody could show up with as many millions of vehicles as you wanted. I when when I we we uh, again here in Helsinki when scooters first came, the government did not have any rules. They said everybody's welcome. Um, you you don't have any any regulations whatsoever, and it didn't actually destroy the market. It it kind of over time they kind of introduced a few regulations, mostly in response to abusive behaviors by the, by consumers. 
not companies. It was like, okay, no, you know, we have drunk people in our scooters, so we have to maybe ban youths from using them at, at you know, after hours. But that, that's the, that, the, this is all a political discussion then, you know, or maybe Tel Aviv, you can actually witness there as well what's going on with, with, uh, with the local government uh, and, and whether it's legal or not. By the way, just one more th- sort of anecdote. In the UK, the scooters are still illegal to this day. And I mentioned China, they're illegal as well. So you have some markets which are so laggard that that they haven't even tried some of these solutions. Famously, the, the, the Germans were like, well, they are not, not legal. Then they became legal and they had to have number plates on, on scooters as if they're sort of motor vehicles. Uh, all kinds of weirdness going around. So I would say it's premature to judge uh, the the models. Um, we've had a few companies go, go public which have been just killed as a result. You know, I'm looking at Bird and Hellbiz now, but, uh, you know, does that mean that the hundreds of others who didn't go public, that they're all doomed as well? I doubt it. Uh, I think that someone will find a way. Um, but uh, it, it's it's early days. Um the every industry goes through a period of let's say a, an explosion in 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 uh, entries entrance uh, the automotive industry i point out between it's in its sort of inception as as a as a vehicle type that was introduced by Benz in 1886 until the 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 model T introduction in sort of mass production in 1914 you know there was a Imagine, you know, moving to the 20th century is like you invent something in 1986, but only really get it into uh, into mass production by by uh, by 2014. That's roughly the time frame we're looking at at the early uh, automotive industry. But in that time, 3000 companies got into car making um, and, you know, wait, you know, a, a decade or so after after uh, 1914. And there were probably only only 10 left. So, we're, you know, every industry goes through this. You go back to look at the PC industry, same thing. How many PC makers there were in the 80s versus, you know, the 90s and the 2000s. Look at the phone industry as well and the PDA industry and other form factors that kind of actually disappeared. Um, so pocket computing went through its own uh, Cambrian explosion and then contraction and then, uh, you know, uh, some sort of consolidation. Uh, I think I think the only question in my mind for the last five years is like where where are we and how long is this going to take? It's funny that you mentioned uh, beauty contests because I think America as a European concept because I think the Americans know a lot uh, about beauty contests. But I I think your perspective that like these these companies focus too much on government relations um, is maybe inverting the problem. I I see the problem as governments overregulated these things in part because Uber came in and slapped them around. And so when micromobility came along, they're like, well, we need to do stuff preemptively in order to regulate this. Um, mm-hmm. We need to get ahead of this. We need to we need to manage this. Um, so you had cities like L.A. introducing a standard where every scooter company needed to report data. You've got insane ideas right now, like you should insert cameras onto scooters so that you can monitor whether passenger, whether riders are riding on sidewalks or not. Um, you've got situations like in Tel Aviv and Santa Monica, for that that uh, matter, the birthplace of micro mobility. If if you look at where Bird, uh, Bird really broke out, where your rate is limited, so you can only go a certain amount, certain speed in this area and a certain speed in that area. Imagine you bought a new 
Ferrari or or uh, yeah. even you know like a Camry. And in certain areas, your car was suddenly rate limited. You go past a school zone and suddenly you have to go slower. I'd celebrate that, but yeah. It would be safer if it was consistently applied. But right. I think never in history have you had so much surveillance uh, of a certain kind of technology in contrast to cars, which are completely under surveilled. And then you have to park these damn things somewhere, but the but the technology doesn't work, so, work that well. So you've got way less parking, uh, like in Tel Aviv, You've got like scattered parking spaces. So you usually have to walk an extra two minutes at least in order to find a parking spot. And then the geofence doesn't always work. So you're just like trying to lock this thing. You can't lock it. And then you're getting charged for every second that you can't lock this damn thing. So mm-hmm. you've you've turned this experience through stupid regulation from over-eager regulators into what used to be something mm-hmm. super fun, into something that's really damn annoying, way more expensive than it needs to be. And substandard. Right. To just touch on your computer analogy, computers never got worse. You know what I mean? Smartphones never got worse, but the experience of scooter riding has been made substantially worse. They didn't have to deal with with uh, new layers of regulation being added as soon as people began to use the product. Um, you know, if there was regulation, it would come much later, you know, with antitrust and other things that sort of said, okay, you've established yourself to be so powerful that now we're, we're sort of need to control uh, some of the some negative consequences. But but to your point, uh, you know, yes, indeed, uh, you know, cities became extremely uh, arbitrary in their decisions. Like I was just saying in San Francisco, um, there's a regulation for having a physical cable lock on 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 a scooter. So the only place I know of that it's actually required this uh, this this appendage, if you will, um, bizarre choices, right? But but again, I I don't think that necessarily suggests that this idea is 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 going to uh, fail long term. Um, if we step back and we ask what the job to be done is, and it's always been. Um, short trips um, with low friction, um, accomplished in an econ- if not economical, then at least a low impact on the environment. You know, with with various innovations related to to um, uh, charging infrastructures, you know, uh, removable batteries and so on, and and being able to discover and and uh, position the vehicles and balance the the network and so on. These are very very good ideas, and, and it's probable that that you know the, the 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 solution of the last and first mile are are best delivered in an urban environment with a shared shared micro vehicle. Uh, that that will eventually settle down into some you know sustainable model. It might not be again the model of saying. Uh, you know, having unicorns as the private equity financing as, as, as the way to go here. But I think the fundamental principle of micromobility is that when you electrify mobility, uh, there's, there's much more to be gained for injecting batteries and electric motors and communications in a small vehicle than in a large one. It's simple physics when it when you think about it and how that ends up being de- deployed to to the user uh, is 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 the whole question we're facing right is it owns is it shared is it uh, two wheels three four is it uh, small wheels or big wheels yeah I, I mean I think the way you you put it um, you can maybe talk a bit about David and Goliath but micromobility is a bit like gravity um, you know it's inevitable it's uh, a correction, you know, that the, there's something very appealing about small vehicles doing things. I think the problem I see um, that I've written about elsewhere 
is that we have this very powerful anti-gravity force, which is massive incentives and subsidization towards the current model of car ownership, whether it's the fact that every new piece of real estate is constructed with parking um, bundled in it that every user of that space is paying for whether they come on a scooter or come in a car. Roads are free, street parking is mostly free or heavily subsidized. Um, so there's this massive regime and then beyond that, you know, you can do basically anything in your car. There's like almost zero surveillance, zero restriction compared to what we're seeing in micromobility. So you've got this incumbent system, which is so heavily favored and subsidized. And then we see it translated into policy with um, this push towards electric vehicles, right? You get $7,500 subsidy to buy an electric car, even if it's a fat, heavy, lithium-ion sucking, uh, what we call battery sponges. Um, but if you're um, you're getting an e-bike or a scooter or any form of micromobility, which might have you know less than one percent the number of lithium uh, cells in it, and using way less energy and can tra- charge in home from a from a wall plug rather than from a special you know battery charging cable that needs to be installed. Even if you're doing that. Um, you're getting zero dollars of subsidization towards doing it. Yeah. So you've got, you, you just see these massive, you know, uh, this regime that really tilts the playing field that makes it really, really hard. Even if there's something inevitable and extremely appealing about micromobility, that means there's an absolute uphill battle to try and roll this stuff out. It may sound perverse, but actually I welcome the resistance because the whole premise of David and Goliath uh, is that the underdog wins regardless of how strong the opponent is. Um, and and I think the inevitability of it is that actually I, I would I would be more nervous if there were subsidies for micromobility. Um, of course, uh, Goliath gets all the resources. Of course, Goliath gets all the subsidies. Go- Goliath gets all the support. But David always wins. Um, back in the day of the internet, the same thing. The early days of the internet, you know, there were many alternatives, and there, you know, the entrenched incumbencies with the use of mainframe computing and and the telephony world, which was you know based on circuit switching as opposed to packet switching. The bitter resentment there was towards any low end alternatives that emerged. Uh, every single thing about the internet was underdog. You kind of work your way around it, right? It's like water flowing around an obstacle, and it's it's sort of inevitable that it it uh, it succeeds and, and and so there's a there's a there's a to me there's a deja vu about this um the the personal computer same th- same story even the early automobility was very much a viral hit as opposed to the incumbency of of rail and 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 uh and uh you know f- shipping lines and and uh and all of the the ways to get around in the 19th century but ours um, i i feel like you're taking a Jesus Christ type turn the other cheek approach to all of this. But we can sit here and say it's inevitable, the changes are going to happen. But in the meantime, the situation is as follows. I live two miles away from my favorite breakfast cafe in the mission and I bike and I walk there. I generate very little emissions, no air pollution. I don't generate road noise. I go by my neighbors silently and their kids love playing on slow streets. I don't threaten them with a 5,000 pound car. But you know, not everyone does that. A lot of people choose to drive those two miles or take an Uber those two miles and contribute to the problem they're trying to avoid. They're trying to avoid the fact that cars 
driven by young idiot men are flying by them past the speed limit. And older idiot men are driving by in lifted pickup trucks, you know, blowing hot, sometimes black exhaust all over us. And it's loud with the cars around and normal people park in the bike lane because they think that cars shouldn't be blocked, but they don't give a shit about people on bikes. And so I, I, this is why people are not taking micromobility and we can be calm and level headed about it. But at some point we have to say that there are huge problems and they're not going to be solved. I'm just surprised that you're not angry. And there's also a risk of survivorship bias. Like David and Goliath stories are the ones that worked out for David. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm sure there's like lots of examples of perfectly good Davids that just didn't reach reality. Um, yeah. And we forget about them because they were kind of blown past in, in history. But I think there are cases where something that's really good just doesn't end up happening. And it also um, matters when something happens. Mm-hmm. Like there's there's things that ought to happen that are inevitable, that are clearly good. But just because we we feel that they will happen, when they happen really, really matters. Well, again, my answer is not just based on historic precedent, which again, there might be survivor bias, but I'm also looking at the present. And I said that this is a global phenomenon and that there are hundreds and hundreds of other cases you can study. And the, another old adage is that, you know, the future is uh, is unevenly distributed. If you do go to places which have adopted micromobility, where people behave in a, let's say, civil fashion towards these vehicles, um, where where you you mentioned, for example, the incumbents being being uh, granted subsidies. Well, just go look at Paris. Just go look at Northern Europe. Just go look at uh, 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 Scandinavia, for example, and you you see an absolute consensus that the car is is to be deprecated. Um, there's not even any debate on the matter. There's not even. I mean, you might have some fringe groups, and in the same way, you might have some, you know, some lunatics on the on the far right who's sort of like pounding the table. But it's it's uh, it, you know, it's a fait accompli. It's a done thing. Uh, a car is finished in Europe, and uh, and 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 it's just a matter of like how to quickly as possible carve it out of society. Um, so uh, yes, the United States is a laggard, which is why is you mentioned timing. Let me you know go back again to this. The, the, this very useful instrument called the adoption curve. Always you should be, you know, as an investor, as a, as a founder, as an entrepreneur, you should always be focused at the right timing. So in the early stages, you should be working with early adopters or, or innovators. Well, the United States, I'm sad to say, is a laggard. You should not be focused there. And it was a surprise to me to see scooter sharing t- take off at all in the United States. We might be looking at micromobility in the United States by 2050. It's a, it's a society that has decided to abandon so much of its life and it's so much of its land and resources and health to the automobile. Why should you try to go head to head there? Um, you know, uh, I could cite tons of statistics about parking and, and, and infrastructure. Well, because it's and, worth and so. it. I, I mean, well, go, going to head, to, look, I, I just feel like the energy, and you've been, you've been, part of this movement for years longer than I have personally. So I, I've read your reading. I have followed the invention of the term micromobility mm. that you've kind of popularized all of these things. So I, I feel a little bit out of place saying this, but I, I'm just, I feel like the energy that you're bringing to this conversation at this point in time, at least in the U S is, is strange because in San Francisco today, JFK Promenade, a car-free zone, almost went back to cars. Slow streets mm-hmm. are being recalled left and right. Um, it's, it is the time to go head-to-head now 
or we're just going to go back to where we were. I mean, I, and, and, well, and America is, becomes America becomes the model for emerging markets too. I mean, China was, you know, they they did high speed rail, but they've also built an incredible amount of roads. If you ever look at China on Google Maps, you just see roads everywhere. And America's got the most capital out of any country. It's where innovation you know, largely happens. So it does become an export market for its ideas and its models, uh, which is why the battle for, you know, change in America, I think really does matter. And it's the small things too. It's my father-in-law drives on a slow streets a little bit to to drop us off once in a while. And, you know, I I don't really want to have an argument with him, but it does require saying, hey, this is an important thing. It's time to go head to head. I don't think you should drive on slow streets. And now he's shifted off of slow streets, and that's good. But Mm. the thing is, that conversation needs to be replicated hundreds of millions of times across Mm. the U.S. And to get people to say, hey, you know, wife, or hey, husband, or or, hey, son, can you not drive so fast because it's making it difficult for that other family to, to bike safely, that's an uncomfortable conversation that requires a certain energy for people to feel that they can have again and again and again to start pushing change. Well, okay, so now you're asking a much more fun, fundamental question is how do you change societal behaviors? And I, you know, again, we've been witness to many, many fundamental changes in culture and many fundamental changes in, in you know, in, in what is, what is accepted and what is uh, welcome uh, as society, you know, obviously, you know, I, I don't want to get into some of the social causes out there. But if you were to analyze this question of micromobility as as a shift in in perception and and behaviors, again, there are there are plenty of studies and or studies sort of disciplines on how to do so. Uh, whether you do it top down, bottom up, or you do it because you're leading with product or you're leading with with solutions, or were you doing it because you create the social stigmas and and all. I'm I'm not in I'm not smart enough to do any of that, but I would say that. His, you know, historically, it just does go through this process of getting people to an early group to to influence the next group, who who then go on to create normal normative behaviors. Now to decide well, what's the what's the path forward, and and uh, again, divide and conquer. Start with places where you demonstrate the value, and you know, uh, uh, allow the jealousy to build in those places which have not uh, accepted it yet. So again, it's too complex, and this is intractable at this moment but it's but you know there are there are uh, plenty of examples i'm aware of uh, that that we've seen behavioral change happen again the reason i talk about europe is is there's an existence proof it's not to say that we shouldn't fight in america but there is an existence proof in europe and you can go there and learn and try to pick up the best ideas from there of course the united states lags on other things you know like you know healthcare and 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 uh, possibly education and so on and and those worlds are fighting and struggling on how to how to bring the best ideas to the united states and um i i you know i i'm i'm sure some some uh, some people will figure it out by the way just on the back on again Sorry to dig up the past again, but if you look back at the history of the smartphone, I moved to Finland because in 1999, I saw it was obvious that people were going to use pocket computers and and there were PDAs and there were these clunky old uh, 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 keyboard-based devices that you could put in your pocket. But I said, you know, I could wait in the United States, which at the time didn't even have uh, data networks at all. There was no 3G, there was no 2G. Or I could go to either Japan or Europe where it's it's far more advanced and, and sort of participate there and, and maybe bring something back. And it took about six, seven years before the launch of the iPhone when the United States finally said, hey, you know, there's something to this. 
mobile phone thing that's also a computer. Um, and the first you know, years of the iPhone, it had terrible um, data throughput on the, on, on the U.S. networks because the U.S. networks were so poor. Uh, and so the, the U.S. during the, early, the first half of the t- 2000s was a laggard when it came to uh, mobile computing, when it came to cellular telephony with, with uh, competing standards and hostility all around from everyone. Uh, but within another five to seven years, it became the home of iOS and Android. So the United States can come from behind and completely leapfrog the world uh, to go from being the, the the lagger to being the leader because the the basis of competition shifted. Now, can we hope that for you know transportation and infrastructures related to it? Uh, it, it may be it may be hard. It may be impossible. We cannot foresee this. And again, we could not have foreseen just what happened in cell phone in cell phone technology. In the, and and you know, believe me, the investments needed there were in the hundreds of billions of dollars to upgrade everything in in the, in all of the networks in the United States and um, and behaviors as well. I had every single one of my friends tell me that they didn't ever expect to use a smartphone. Um, but well, the Europeans certainly did uh, use a kind of a, you know feature phones. So the, the, I, I've seen this before. I, I'm not discouraged by by the United States, um, and uh, you know, and I'm not dismissing the United States either. I'm just pointing out that that it's there is a it's inevitable. It makes way too much sense. The forces acting on 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 the planet, especially with with respect to you know emissions, are you know like you have a solution right under your nose, and all it takes is a little bit behavioral change. Well, create the proper incentives, and you'll see that happen. I'm I'm not I'm not worried. I'm just I'm just frustrated by an inability to predict the timing, but not the final outcome. It's interesting. I think the way you look at it is you know there's this shift unfolding. It's inevitable. But it's more like you're watching and, and tracking it. You don't see so much it as like a battle um, uh, and and a fight in order to shift mindshare. Whereas I, the way I, I kind of see it is in the United States, we just went through a cycle of policymaking where $7,500 subsidies were handed out to every relatively wealthy you know American that can afford to own a car to buy a slightly different kind of car with an electric powertrain. The sensible argument is the one that you gave. It's the quote-unquote solution uh, to climate change and transition, and everybody celebrated it. And yet, in my mind, what we're subsidizing is exactly the wrong thing. We're basically driving up the cost of raw materials, like lithium, um, by putting them into vehicles like Teslas and Hummer EVs and all sorts of other uh, fat American electric vehicles that are being created now to suit the American taste. But it's driving up the global cost of uh, raw materials for electric vehicles, slowing down the transition of raw. Um, and there is a certain kind of urgency. Um, and yet the e-bike subsidy, which was originally part of the bill, um, seems to be a, a clear battle with the potential turning point with you know, implications as to whether it turns one way or the other way. I mean, the, I think the sense of inevitability risks kind of being a little bit passive on what we really need to be fighting for. And it seems like 
a subsidy to e-bikes could really shift the equation dramatically in a much nearer time frame with real implications that are positive. Well, if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So if you think the answer is going to be subsidies or capital in general is going to solve the problem, yeah, you're going to look at how do we spend money intelligently to, to make this happen. But there are other things, um, you know, as, as grassroots efforts have shown that, you know, um, you, you can motivate people, you know, without necessarily putting money on the table. And um, I, I know we're 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 sort of really hungry for the quick and and and, and clean solutions, uh, the decisive things. But there are going to be a lot of very small things possibly adding up. Um, let me pr- propose something, for example, that. Um, um, we haven't seen much of, which is like, what if infrastructures that we think are needed to be built by by uh, by governments, by by public funds, what what if they're built by by private funds? Which sounds crazy, but there's a possibility for deep pockets to come in and say, hey, maybe we can pay for those bike lanes um, in, in sort of a, maybe if not charity, but some sort of a, a grants that are 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 constructed. You know, um, people can get very creative with capital in the United States. Um, we can imagine uh, uh, solutions where where. Uh, again, it's not either you know, v- v- venture capital or, 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 or public, which is very politicized money, uh, but rather something in the middle, maybe corporate money, maybe, maybe uh, foundation money, maybe uh, charities that are, could get involved and, and try to kind of bridge the, the infrastructure gaps. Uh, we, you know, it, because it, it's a chicken and egg problem. It's, it's a mesh. It's not a, a single point. It's, there are interconnected dependencies here we're dealing with. Right, so so whenever you get into uh, this these arguments, it's like, well, we we can't have uh, nice things. Well, because we need we need infrastructure, and we we know that to get infrastructure, we need to have political support, and we need to have you know uh, uh, debate, and 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 it's slow. Oh, and, and equity, and we everything has to be equitable. You know, this is another. Uh, strange American phenomenon where you you don't build good things because you have to target the good things to the people who who need them most first, uh, which means you actually don't get it done. So there's a lot of there's there's a lot of dysfunction. But I you know I'm not a political analyst, and I I, I can only say that that. Um, I still feel <laughs> this is, I know it sounds like I'm, you know, um, quixotic here, but it's like there's an inevitability to this. Um, but let's uh, find a way to get smart people to, to look at this problem. And I, I think I think there'll be pretty magical solutions happen. Again, in, in retrospect, all of the amazing things that have happened, uh, yes, perhaps with survivor bias, but every amazing things that have happened were unforeseeable. You go back 20 years and you could not foresee the present in any shape or form. Um, go back 100 years and, and you would see again, no one could look forward 20 years for the last uh, century or so at least that we've had uh, incredible uh, innovations happen. Um, uh, every historian would, you know, would point out that that, 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 that no no one predicted that exactly what would happen. So, and the predict, people who did try to predict long term always got it wrong. Um, so, so yeah, I, I'm I'm still very bullish on this. Um, but you, you you're right. You're you're sort of picking the toughest place to to try to solve it, which is in the United States at this time. The reason why I think we're so disappointed over the subsidy is because earlier your point, Horace, was you know, the U.S. was able to bounce back and, and catch up to all the, the ways in which other countries had leapfrogged it in the, the cellular space. But, but part of that, I think, was moving the challenge of progress into a field of activity that somehow the U.S. is competent at. Like, we're really incompetent at getting 
people to change their behavior. Like look at the pandemic, right? But as soon as you had a drug that could be distributed through like retail outlets to put people in people's arms, like the US vaccine adoption was was very rapid. It was almost like Israel, right? Mm-hmm. But the the question is, what is the U.S. good at and how does it get things done? And it seems obvious that one of those things is the U.S. has a government that can dump enormous sums of money to influence consumer behavior. And that's why we keep coming back to like how disappointing this e-bike subsidy uh, or the lack thereof is. Okay, if you believe government is the answer, which I, I, I'm, I'm on the sidelines on that, I don't know. Um, but if you believe that, then 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 spend uh, you know a few billions of dollars in 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 lobbying the government to do the right thing i mean that's how industry works in the united states right so so the question is where would that where would that lobbying capital come from i mean the, the industry right now is not is not made up of of sort of large incumbents with with uh with the giant, uh, you know, piles of cash, it's made up of of uh, startups and and venture capital, basically, um, which doesn't feel like they need to, you know, they could spend billions in 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 creating policy. That's the question. It's like, what is what is the path forward? Is it is it through the government or is it going to be some kind of um, mass mass movement where people are super excited about this, maybe localized, maybe very focused, maybe uh, uh, certain cities. Um, and and it's I know I I've, I've I have all these same frustrations. And why is it that some of the greatest cities in the world, which are like New York or 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 East Coast cities like Boston, which is also where where I can kind of call home, um, you, on one hand they they are moving forward, but it's it's. Uh, it, it seems like they could be doing so much more, um, and uh, and they seem you know New York was was banning e bikes altogether. I mean, incredible, incredible boneheadedness. But um, so I, I'm sorry, I don't have the answer. But it's in general, I think Americans can be very, very uh, in, ingenious about making solutions happen. Um, and uh, and deploying capital in clever ways, uh, both public and 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 private, and uh, this this problem will get solved in one way or another. I divide problems into two categories: those that can be solved with a pen, um, literally, you know, the stroke of a pen, uh, and those that that require uh, a lot of iteration and a lot of innovation and a lot of experimentation, and therefore they tend to be the ones that are driven by industry, which are like, okay, let's solve the problem by by understanding human behavior and then delivering product in iterate in iterative steps that sort of you know unlock that that uh, that puzzle. But the stroke of a pen thing is like going from and you mentioned parking early on. You go from a situation where parking is mandated to where parking is illegal. Now that's just a matter. Of a, of a pen. And uh, just today, I read that the governor of California signed into law the elimination of parking minimums with the caveat that they're in areas served by by, by transit. Um, but but that just happened with the stroke of a pen. And it just happened because people lobbied or argued or, or you know, made the case clear that parking is toxic. And, and one lone voice, by the way, uh, Professor Shoup was the one who for 30 years has made this argument, and only now he's being heard. Uh, but this is this is the, this is the way it works. In the in you know you you wait and you wait and you wait, and then suddenly the 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 adoption curve goes vertical. Uh, it could have gone nice and and steady for a long long time, but no. In this case, it's all is a step function instead of an S curve. So it's possible that change can happen. It could be very delayed. 
Um, we had a governor, uh, sorry, a change of, of, of mayor in, in New York. And again, possibilities emerge at that point, right? You have to go on the political cycle. We have a great new administration, relatively speaking. Uh, and we have sympathy in, 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 uh, in Secretary Buttigieg. I, again, I'm not a political analyst. But if, if, if let's say, there were be um, um, a micromobility lobbying group or, or, or nonprofit or something like that, maybe, maybe that's the way to go. Maybe there should be someone who speaks for the industry at the highest levels and, and, and pushes through and writes the bills, as it were. So again, uh, I'd love to be able to be the one to solve this, but it feels like I'm, 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 uh, I'm not the one to do it, but, I, but maybe I should, I, should, uh, I should consider doing something. Yeah, I, I think on the David versus Goliath analogy, and this is coming from a Jewish perspective, I don't think it's necessarily the case that David always beats Goliath. I think you have this confidence that you know, there'll be a correction because it's so clear that micromobility, and, and I think the more you look at it, how obvious it is that micromobility is better um, and more effective in solving mobility needs in many different use cases, not every use case, but many different use cases than cars are. I think what's interesting about David, about David uh, as a character, is that he doesn't really accept the status quo. He's a doer, he's a fighter, I mean, if if you read, you know, um, those books in the Bible um, that that talk about David, he's, you know, he's he's really willing to completely fight against the incumbent order. And I feel like that is needed oftentimes in order to fight, in order to change things. And and in many cases, A, you might not necessarily win a fight. Like things, you can have these tragedies where something that is good and, and wonderful. And I think lobbying and regulatory capture has led to really bad outcomes that are sustainable in America. And then secondly, I think timing matters, and especially when you when you put the you put the, the clock of, of of emissions and climate change, et cetera. Transportation is extremely hard to carbonize and we can we can double click on this. I think it's a really interesting point. Um, the sooner we start, you know, there's compounding effects. Yeah, I, I've, I've done the numbers, but let me just step back on this question, this metaphysical question about uh, David and Goliath, whether he would have always won. The, the, you know, one other way to put it, this question is, had Steve Jobs not been around, would there have been an iPhone? You know, uh, uh, is the idea of the iPhone and then and thus the, the entire um, um, uh, revolutionary way of, of interacting with machines that we have today, um, would that even have uh, ever emerged uh, or Henry Ford and, and the you know the Model T and then therefore the auto industry would that also have emerged? You know that's a great question and I cannot I cannot answer. Uh, but you also brought up the, this 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 point about David also having the right character to to be engaged in the fight. And yes, it's necessary uh, that there be innovators who are are motivated to 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 sacrifice and and to take risk. Um, but I will say that there's yet another element, which is kind of like my the tradition I come from, which is the the sort of the business school tradition of of uh, of saying that there's a system at work uh, beyond simply great individuals doing doing amazing things that move the world forward, and that system um, is asymmetry. What 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 I point out is that you know the the the, the real you know besides having yes I know the conditions of 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 uh, of willpower, but there's also this. 
this this point about having a projectile versus a, a you know a bladed sword. Um, the 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 point is that from a physics point of view, we have a very asymmetric competition between micromobility and, and automobility. We have we have something that is 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 uh, from a from a you know as I said physics point of view, very efficient, very targeted to the to the short trips, which are the most important trips, very economical. Um, plus, the, it wins on on climate. It wins on so many levels, and it can just it, it can iterate quickly. It can learn quickly. Uh, it can deploy quickly. It, it can do everything faster and turn faster than than, than automobility, uh, and therefore it, it learns. It adapts. It, uh, it it's 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 just so incredibly alive, versus versus something so so atrophied. So this is why. Um, when you when you when you step back and say yes, we do need these these important people. We do need these these warriors, these 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 uh, heroes to 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 do the to do the actual uh, fighting. Uh, but but we give them great weapons, and that weapon is the the projectile, the sling versus the uh, versus the blade. And we have the 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 within micromobility and within the the. Enablers of microability, we have these amazing tools that they can be picked up, and and somebody can run with them, and they're just there. They're ready to be picked up uh, and integrated. And I, one of the tenets I also talk about micromobility is that no one invented micromobility. Micromobility is not the result of a moonshot. It wasn't. They had no R and D budget whatsoever. It was picking up pieces that were available on the ground, developed decades earlier for completely different applications, like lithium-ion batteries, like the smartphone that actually enables the the comms module on on any any shared vehicle. The fact that we have miniaturized uh, the the and, and high high torque motors, which are which are super cheap because somebody you know decades ago put them in a in a in a a hoverboard or something like that and and so we had all these pieces available gps networks built for for military for all things um they're available to us and then we just reintegrated them into into packages that were, you know initially cost only hundreds of dollars to put together and um startups could get going with with minimal funding um that's the stuff of dreams as far as you know innovation is concerned because you don't have to you don't have to solve deep deep structural issues. Now, you run into structural issues when it comes to these new uh, infrastructures that are necessary, but this is, again, where history uh, comforts you because, you you know, you invent a steam engine and then you have to figure out how to make rail networks. My God, you know how hard it could be to think of how do you make rail networks across the whole world where where you need to rewrite laws about the right of ways? You need to you need to you know confiscate land from farmers in order to put a you know a, a track and then find ways of mining coal so you could fuel everything. I mean the the, the infrastructures that we built over time from from the earliest uh, which were uh, uh, roads you know the ancient Roman roads but then you have also things like the the canals that had to be dug out of the ground so that water can be made to you know you you have to invent artificial rivers to sort of transport things and then we had to you know the iron the you know the iron horse and all of that stuff in the 20th century. My God, these were incredible achievements, moving mountains, digging up things, inventing dynamite just so you can make holes in mountains. All of these things came because of the invention of a, an enabling technology called the steam engine, which then opened your eyes to all these possibilities. So we, if we've done this before, and we've, you know, yes, China has poured more concrete in the last 20 years than the United States did in a century, and they were just misguided, sunk costs, bad idea, 
Shouldn't have done it that way. Drop everything, start all over again. You think that's impossible? We've done it five times over. And I think as a species, we're totally going to do it all over again as far as infrastructures. And I know I'm sitting here, you know, comfortably saying this with potentially a 50-year time horizon, but but that's what I think is necessary at this moment is to give the, give the, uh, the hope and the faith if not the means and the, and the path to do so. Yeah, and, and I, I think this is like a, it's like a prophetic vision, right? Like we're headed in the right direction. We're going to get there. Um, I I think I, I I feel quite connected to the present though and, and the kind of present challenges. Well, I, uh, you I, mentioned I all these, you, you, you mentioned, I mean, I'm actively investing in this, I'm actively investing in this space, but I'm also, I'm also like an impatient Jew that wants the world to be better already. But, <laughs> oh. um, but, but uh, you, you mentioned all these amazing things that we've done, but I think that was true f- for the, for the 20th century, you know, the Golden Gate Bridge, I think it took three or four years to build um, now, you know the expansion of the Bay Bridge uh, took ten years or fifteen years and cost you know fifteen x or twenty x the cost adjusted for inflation. Um, and you mentioned you know these these things that can be fixed with the pen, but I think in many ways the pen and overregulation and restriction is actually choking very fundamental changes. The smartphone emerged in a space that was underregulated, but the space of transportation is so heavily and restrictively regulated in such a way that it's, you know, it chokes innovation and it can, I think, in certain cases, choke it to death, um, which is, you know, really bad. And maybe there'll be a period of dormancy and then things will resuscitate. But I feel like we're at a, we're at a moment where, where we where we do need to fight for for the right thing and 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 so get it let to me let sooner. me frame it slightly slightly differently sort of like okay we're not micromobility is not fighting for a new uh, Golden Gate Bridge uh, uh, or, or or new tunnels or new rail networks or new anything it's actually just fighting for a slice of the existing infrastructure which actually is over provisioned it's overly you know it, 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 it's it's there so it can absorb uh, semi tractor trailers weighing 80,000 pounds and it's only you know saying how look at me i ha- i only have 180 pounds to transport on two wheels what what it's asking for is therefore a small tiny slice of the bandwidth that's been already provisioned to the automobile so it's like we, we talk about cell phones you know we had to re, we had to build all the towers and all the all the the bandwidth needed for all billions of devices to suddenly be doing broadband wirelessly amazing just astonishing crazy insane idea and so here we are very modestly asking, can we just have, have like maybe a meter or two of the of the existing road that's that's like you know, obviously far too. And big in spite for... of that, we can't get it right. Like, well, that's, well, that's what's so interesting. But my here point is, is that, like, that in spite it's actually... of how small the ask is, I mean, I feel like we feel very little. No, 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 no. no. You're just things. being and impatient because the, the, this will come. Because you see, when when you look at places which have done it, they they get overly enthusiastic and actually saying ban, ban, ban the car, and it's like. Because it, it, it becomes, you've, you, it flips so quickly, it, the, the, the sentiment and the feelings. And I know the U.S. seems laggard, but, but believe me, if you had enough people and it, it would be like, you know, a mass movement of people just taking the lane, they're just showing up with vehicles. And it would just, it, 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 it's, it's, this is how revolutions happen, right? It's, it's, uh, uh, we're seeing it now in, in, in Iran, hopefully, you know. Uh, uh, but the, it's, it's, it could be a mass movement and we'll see whether or not this, this can happen happen uh, in the United States. Everybody's fearful until they're not. 
everybody's against it until yeah. they're not. I, I mean, I think we've been waiting for revolutions in, in China and Russia and Iran for a long time. And, you know, the the, the, the forces that, at, at, that be have been really, really good. And I think in some cases increasingly better at suppressing them. But it, I mean, I, I think we've kind of hammered this point and, and definitely understand um, I think anybody listening that wants to join this fight, I'm definitely willing to fight it um, <laughs> and try to make these changes happen. I think I think there's a real win that can be done around uh, e-bike subsidies. I think there's a regulatory cycle where there needs to be more organization and focus. I think there's been a lack of coordination in the industry to really articulate clearly why this is better, why this is necessary right now. I, you see the electric vehicle lobby, you know, with car makers, et cetera, well-organized, pushing for, you know, tens, hundreds of billions of dollars of subsidization. You've seen companies like Tesla completely get off the ground on the back of of government support and subsidy. I mean, Tesla was never an inevitable story. It managed to worm its way around Mm -hmm. many different threats that were quite existential, and it came out of it and and really has been transformative um, in in many ways through the process. But I I do want to talk about this point, and you can tie it into Tesla if if you want, and and electric vehicles, etc., um, but but I think you've done some interesting looking into uh, carbon and, and emissions from uh, transportation and, and, and how hard it is to actually transform things. So maybe that's like an interesting thing uh, for you to double click on. So transport, if I remember, it's sort of going off my memory here. That's a few months old now. But um, but I think it was about 45% of the global emissions are are from the transport sector. And that could be subdivided, obviously, into, into you know, uh, goods transports and, and, uh, and, 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 and uh, shipping and uh, uh, rail and uh, um, aviation. And, uh, and, and then you have personal vehicles. And personal vehicles comes down to maybe about half of that or maybe a bit more but here's my here was my observation is that the 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 um there are some of those so so that that whole 45% has to sort of shrink by half within a certain time frame for 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 everybody who has to uh has to uh do their share to reduce overall carbon now the amazing thing about um uh, the the other sectors that are emitting, right? The non the non transportation sectors, they're very centralized. You have power plants, you have industry, uh, you 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 have uh, maybe you know some distribution of 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 household heating and so on that can be kind of uh, dealt with on a household basis. But then, but the the point is that you know you, you can create uh, uh, regulations, you can you can create investments, you can create very targeted. Um, um, uh, planning on on how to reduce these these uh, industrial scale uh, uh, decarbonization, but for transport, here's my problem: that for particular personal transport is is you have to convince about a billion and a half people to switch their mode or to 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 upgrade their their existing vehicle, um, and possibly another billion people that are ready to jump into personal mobility uh, within the next 15 years, so that the pool of of, of personal vehicles is going to go from 1.2 uh today to probably as many as three uh within 15 years because you have the burgeoning new uh emerging middle class uh globally and this is what happened in china china you know added to the global fleet uh at least uh, i think 300 million vehicles in the last decade um you know the 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 the, the, the you know in the 1980s it were half a billion and now we're at 1.2 uh, personal vehicles, which are uh, which are you know uh, apparently uh, um, 
you, you know, just growing and growing. So my point on, on that was that, okay, so so the, the, the transportation of goods is very difficult to compress because it's like trucks, which are kind of efficient already, you know, with, with diesel engines um, driving relatively slowly. Um, and and those, those vehicles are, are, are tough to, to electrify, uh, but it's coming, you know. Uh, but if you were to sort of ask, where's the slop? Where's the waste? Where's the, where's the, the compressibility of emissions? You clearly see it in, in, in consumer vehicles. And, and the answer there of being an electric, an electric car instead of an internal combustion car asks for so much. It asks for all of these batteries to be used primarily to transport batteries because that's, that's going to be their, their primary function is you, you're, you're, you're delivering vehicles which have far more capacity for, for distance than, 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 than necessary. Every, every study can show you this, that, that the 95% of trips are below a certain distance that is you know, one tenth or one fifth of the capacity of it, you know, given by 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 a modern uh, electric car. Um, so my point is that if you were to try to solve the puzzle of emissions uh, with transportation, it's almost like inevitable. Once again, there, there's that word that you have to change the vehicle architectures. Otherwise, you either you can't serve a billion people with electric cars. Never mind three billion within 15 years, and do so well reducing the overall carbon, not just in emissions of transport, but the emissions of production of the vehicles themselves, which is actually the front loading of of emissions that happens with electric cars. But th- therefore, it sort of becomes, uh, this is why when I give this presentation, I kind of leave it as, a, as an exercise to the, to, the, to the audience to sort of say, well, how do we get to this, uh, to this uh, desired outcome? And it's sort of the only way to do so is through, through, through micromobility. Again, I don't give the path to do so, but I give you the answer that will actually get you there. Um, so it, it, one other thing that, by the way, so this loops back into the question of the will to change and where's the political power going to come from. If people suddenly become aware of, like the way, you know, Greta energized people uh, with a call to action, uh, but a lot of finger pointing as well. Uh, but if people were to come around to this idea and realize the, the power of micromobility to actually save the planet, yeah, I, I, I'm even saying that, right? If they realize this, then the energy, the the enthusiasm, and and uh, you know possible you know mania that could result uh, does move mountains, does change behaviors, does make does make that pen write the, the 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 law. It's 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 a process. Again, I don't see the path directly there, but it, but it's a it's it's to me it's one of those things that that puts fire in people's bellies. So it is it is partly my mission to kind of write the next chapter. Remember remember the inconvenient truth uh, it was about 15 years ago. How what, what's happened since? It's like time now to write the next version of that slide presentation and say, well, actually there is a path to doing this and and it would include uh, for most people the most they could do that we have to convince a billion people to change what they do. That's where I think we need to focus it, uh, as opposed to governments. But, but to, to to convince people to say I can do my part by changing the vehicle I drive, or how often I use it, and maybe adding a, a vehicle to my fleet that actually I use for short trips as opposed to long trips, and that's 
that's possibly one way forward is, is again, through evangelism, you know, a persuasion through through the classical rhetoric that's, uh, that's possible. Yeah, I mean, I think Al Gore is interesting. I mean, I don't have super strong views, Bush versus Gore, but he lost an election effectively by, what, 512 votes, right? Sometimes these things really do hang uh, on a knife edge. But I think overall... I think you you're pointing to why there's urgency and and why there's a need to shift things and 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 why it's important. Um, so yeah, I mean, I agree with that. I think what really the challenge is is that we sit around longer than we need to and 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 that there are bad consequences that result. The great thing about having a conversation with an investor as opposed to, let's say, you know uh, a pundit, is that you guys really have time horizons. You know, you need to deliver a fund and you need to do so in a certain time frame. Um, there, there's an we urgency. We all have time horizons. We, we yeah, all yeah, have time no. horizons. I mean, you want to see this stuff change in your own lifetime as well, I think, right? Like, we, well, we, but that we, makes we, we know. Challenging yeah, but, you from based on a fun time horizon. I was challenging you based on the horizon of I want to live in a better city, right? Like no, I, I no, I, I'm only pointing out the fact that that it's good to have these boundaries because I, 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 it's 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 easy it's easier to do what I do sort of sort of dream. And the question then comes immediately that you know when if you do have inevitability, you may still have a time which is far too long. Um, and you also need the catalyst to make it happen. And that's where I ask myself is like, what is the role of capital? And I would say the role of capital is to accelerate the inevitable, to fit within the time frame that is actually far more useful. There's another adage I used to, or saying I used to say that, you know, um, the futurist knows what's going to happen. The, the billionaire knows when one thing happens. And that, that's the, 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 the really critical question is how do we accelerate and how do we get these, uh, these Steve Jobs uh, uh, and Elon Musks to actually force through the change, uh, which might be inevitable, but maybe simply delayed, uh, you know, in, indefinitely because of inaction. That's, that's yeah. where I see... Uh, I see the role, uh, you know, that we need leadership on. I think that's exactly right. And when you talked about the canals and railroads and, you know, bridges, for instance, that that got built, these they start getting built really quickly once capital starts to flow. Mm-hmm. But you need the mm-hmm. initial shift to happen for that capital to flow. Um, yeah, and I, I, I worry that, like, capital is not flowing fast enough into the space. And then it's flowing stupidly i think into other spaces yeah. i need to convince capital and i need to convince the 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 deep pockets out there that are maybe the lps not even the vcs the vcs could be very well on board but they're like you know they're also constrained so we need to get some serious serious big money and there's so much capital out there that is perhaps uh, you know it, it, it's so poorly allocated you know it, it's it well maybe not with interest it, rates maybe maybe it'll be better allocated i don't know it's waiting for the in- inevitability mm. to be clearer so to speak right i think this yeah. inevitability is on the horizon i think once it becomes like in the middle ground that's when capital really starts to flow and things start to rapidly transform anyway it, i think this has been a really interesting conversation um i think we've enjoyed pushing you because i think your perspective so deep and so broad um, that um, it really kind of highlights the breadth of, of the changes that are happening that we're in the midst of, but also uh, I think some of the challenges uh, that need to be overcome in the near term. So really appreciate your time and your perspective. Oh, thank you, gentlemen. It's been a wonderful conversation.